Hi, I'm Andrew, and welcome to the Review of Two Dyes Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Thomas Ubri. Uh, I think I might have pronounced that right. It might be Aubrey or Ubri or something like that, but it's French, so I can't do it. But uh, he can probably do it better than I am. Uh, Thomas, uh, could you do the correct pronunciation of your name so that people understand um, how to do French? Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. My name is Thomas Aubry in French, and I guess Aubry in English. Uh, and I'm very glad that you are tolerating French people on here, despite Brexit. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I'm not personally responsible for Brexit. Um, but uh, we've um, uh, France and England have, have had a, a proud and noble history of warfare for nearly a thousand years, and and, and so our our deep suspicion of the French um, predates Brexit by many many centuries. Uh, but despite um, uh, us giving you a good slapping at the Battle of Agincourt, very happy to have you on the show. Um, could you give um, us a uh, a, a quick summary of the, uh, the title and journal um, of the paper that you're here to discuss. Sounds good. But the title is Climate Change Modulates the Stratospheric Volcanic Sulfate Aerosol Life Cycle and Radiative Forcing from Tropical Eruptions. Uh, and the journal is Nature Communications. Okay. So um, Nature Communications is like the... Um, uh, the sort of spillover club. If your shoes weren't shiny enough to get into the club you wanted to go into, you get into the other club, and that's Nature Communications, right? I think that's a very good summary. So in that case, we directly submitted to Nature Communications, but uh, yeah, I think that's... Uh... Oh, you, uh, you definitely wanted to go to the B club, not the A club. It was a positive decision. <laughs> um, so your, uh, the, if you could summarise in a sentence or two uh, the basic premise uh, uh, of your paper, I think I've got it from the title. But if you could um, just give us a, a you know a one or two sentence summary of the key message that you'd like people to understand, so our lazier listeners can go back to sleep and not have to listen to the red, uh, rest of the podcast. Sounds good. So the key motivation of the paper is that volcanic eruption affect climate and mostly cool climate, uh, but we play with the major question of how climate could affect volcanic eruption. And the key result, I would say, is that in terms of that cooling effect, we find that big eruptions are going to become bigger and small eruptions smaller in terms of their cooling effect again as hers gets warmer. Okay, so, so let, let me just uh, sort of start to pick this apart because I want to get an understanding of this because th there's, there's a couple of different ways that climate can affect volcanoes. And I think you're just concentrating on the climate dynamics effects, aren't you? Is that correct? Um, yes, but I'm not 100% sure what you mean by the climate dynamics effect. Well, the, but... the other way, the other way that, or one of the other ways that um, uh, volcanoes and climate can be interrelated is that you have a situation where the ice sheets uh, are, um, and the sea level changes, and so you have a tectonic response, right? So the uh, either you have volcanoes which were capped with large ice sheets that are then not capped and not subjected to the same pressures that they previously were subjected to um, and you, you have a, a, a direct movement uh, of your um, uh, uh, of the, the overlying rock um, and that causes volcanism and the other one is that you might have um, uh, isostatic rebound where you have a much broader scale movement so um, the UK is particularly subject to isostatic rebound because the north of England was glaciated, or the north of the UK was glaciated um, in the in the um, 
the last glacial maximum and the um, south of the UK wasn't. And so it's like a seesaw as you have more uh, ice on Scotland and um, other places that uh, you wouldn't want to go to unless you had to. Um, uh, you, they get pressed down into the earth um, where they rightfully should be. And the south of England gets raised up and then uh, you have this opposite seesaw effect of the ice melt um, and uh, uh, the south of England sinks. So, but you're not looking at these tectonic responses, are you? You're looking at different ways in which uh, climate um, and glaciers are interacting. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So we are looking at, uh, I would say, what I would call atmospheric volcanic processes. So anything that's affected by what's happening in the atmosphere. Um, and not by climate change impact on uh, the frequency magnitude distribution of eruptions, which is uh, what you were just discussing. So we're interested in after an eruption happens, uh, how does well, what, climate change modulate? But to, give, but to give readers, I keep calling them readers, I don't know why, give listeners a background um, uh, on the subject. I'd imagine that you're, you know, you've got experience of, uh, of volcanology you know, slightly broader extent than just the climate dynamics papers that you're doing at the moment. So what, um, what do you know about the, the likelihood of effects um, on uh, volcanic frequency and magnitude from climate change? Is it, is it an area that you've got knowledge of? Is it, is it a bigger effect than the effect that you've discussed? Or is it a, a smaller effect than the effect that you've discussed? Give us a bit of background of how your work fits into a broader program of uh, a work and a broader spectrum of understanding of, of this complex and interesting fields of, of climate volcanology. Yeah, of course. So that's, that's not an area I'm an expert on, but I obviously know about it uh, as a background knowledge. Uh, and so like you say, the expectation is that uh, as Hearst deglaciate uh, and as feet melt, is that ice-covered volcano uh, would see their eruption frequency and also magnitude increase. Um, it's hard to directly compare that effect to what we discussed in the paper for reason I'm going to explain. Um, first of all, it would only affect places where deglaciation has a role to play. So you wouldn't expect it to affect most tropical volcanoes, uh, for example. Well, would it, would it, then, I mean, but, like you're, you're talking about the ice effect, but are there not other effects? So, for example, if the deep ocean warms, then might it have an effect on the libricity um, in, in, the, um, in the tectonic plates? You know, that, I can think of a number of different potential mechanisms um, for an influence on um, volcanic frequency uh, and magnitude. I don't know whether any of them will actually sort of whether they're real in terms of, you know, whether, whether they'll actually happen in practice, but I, I can think of a number of theoretical me mechanisms. I mean, do, do, we, do, we, do you feel, as somebody in this field, that we have a good understanding of what all of these relative, the relative importance of all these different effects are, or is this still a very emergent speculative field that you're working in? I think it's, uh, I would still describe it as an emerging field, uh, like you said. Most of the work has been focused on uh, how deglaciation affects eruption frequency magnitude. Uh, I'm hearing more and more about how um, extreme precipitation event could also trigger eruption. Uh, and most of the volcanoes in the world are projected to see more and more extreme precipitation. Um, what would the mechanism be? I think, so it, it depends 
if we are talking about deglaciation or precipitation, I'm an, I'm an expert in none of this area. Uh, so uh, I don't want to uh, mislead uh, our audience here. But either has to do uh, with pressure effect and loading effect on the volcanic edifice. Or in the case of precipitation, I think it has to do with uh, also pressure effect and uh, rock fracturation. But um, so if you have if you have wetter wetter soils over a volcano, then it, it it squeezes the volcano down a bit harder, and then as that material dries out, you have a a kind of pressure release effect, and that kind of cyclic loading is bigger in a rainier environment. Is that what you're talking about? I think that's broadly what's happening here, but that's pretty again, cool. I didn't know. I, about I would not, um, yeah, I would not give you my hand to cut on that. Um, I can. I, I, can I shouldn't worry about a lack of expertise. We, we never bother about uh, not no. knowing what we're talking about on this show. So, uh, but but your 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 specific focus on climate dynamics, and I think what you're saying is the, the basic thrust of what you're saying is we don't necessarily have a clear understanding of which of the effects are more important. Is that right? You know, you know, climate dynamics might be important, but it's hard to know whether the glaciation or whatever is going to ultimately turn out to be the more important effect. Yes, I think because uh, most of these mechanisms have been discussed separately and uh, also the climate dynamics effect was only just emerging. Uh, it's still hard to give an answer on you know, what effect will be more important, how they will combine. I think it's very much the future of this field. Uh, but we are not there yet. Uh, and I guess what our paper does is mostly open new suggestions in terms of how climate change could affect volcanic processes rather so, than give definitive answers on uh, okay. what so, so talk, talk, me, talk me through the processes that you, you went through to, to, to do this paper. So firstly, I assume it's a team effort. These modeling papers are normally done by multiple authors. So who, who was on your author team and what, what expertise did they have in, in the various aspects of the field? Yes, it is. So before I answer your question, I just wanted to add on the volcanic deglaciation effect that there is a time lag associated with it. And depending on the system considered, it's uh, a few hundred years to a few thousand years. Uh, so it's not an effect that you would expect to see uh, anytime soon. Um, well, now, let me just challenge that. I mean, I think that we don't really know what ice sheet behavior is going to be under climate change. It's one of the most, un that and cloud responses are probably two of the most uncertain things about climate change, um, because we, we don't, we simply don't understand to any great extent the, 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 the whether the ice is going to, you know, slide off the hills or, or dribble off as it melts. That's the, you know, the fundamental challenge is to work out to what extent those two things happen. So yes, it might take centuries or, or we might find it happens rather quicker so um i would be cautious about saying it's going to be a long time it's it's not related to how fast the ice sheet melt it's related to how fast the volcanic system respond to deglaciation um, oh, right. so in, in, what you're saying is even if the volcano even if the ice sheet melted pretty quickly exactly then the volcanoes would still take quite a long time because the the earth's crust is kind of kind of gooey right it takes it doesn't it doesn't respect react quickly it's, bit, it's more like molasses than water right Yes, I think you. I think you conveyed the right idea. But what I'm saying is, even if we melt all ice sheet in the next decade, you would expect uh, this increase in eruption frequency to take place only centuries later. That's what we see in geological records of uh, 
uh, ice sheet treatment glaciation and, yeah. and volcanic eruption frequency. So we've got pretty good models. I mean, I know we're getting a little bit distracted, but it, it's kind of interesting because I think most people in um, geoengineering and climate change, they've got a good understanding of, um, uh, you know, the basics of uh, volcanoes in, in terms of kind of how they are and what they do. But I think some of the details lost. And I think generally, certainly amongst the community of scientists that I'm involved with, they um, the, the understanding of the details of volcanism is much less than the details of the understanding of climate. So do we have good rock and volcanism models? You know, do you have general circulation models of the Earth interior or, or is it just you know, poorly understood and poorly modelled compared to other um, aspects of the Earth system? Uh, so we are still talking about this deglaciation effect, right? Well, I'm not specifically, oh. but what I'm, what I'm talking about is you, you're talking about the response, you know, how, how long it takes volcanoes to respond. And you're, you're talking about going back into paleoclimatic literature and looking at how volcanoes respond to deglaciation events, right? Yes. So this is something that you have done by analysing the historical or the prehistoric record, right? Yeah. I mean, now, it's, the not it's not something I have done. No, 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 no. But it's something right, but I'm, blam yes. I'm blaming you here for the entire sins of the volcanology. That, that sounds great. I mean, I'm even French, before you were can born. Blame me. yeah? uh, so yes. On the principle yeah. of collect collective guilt, you're responsible on this show for all volcanologists since the beginning of the world. So, sounds perfect. I think there is combined uh, evidence uh, from both paleoclimate and the geological record uh, observations and from modeling too. Um, I think so, that models... So, so do, do volcanologists have like rock circulation models? Because, you know, with the rock, rock does circulate in the earth, but I don't know whether we have computational models of that, um, that, 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 that are comparable to climate models. I mean, are, are, are there such a thing exist or is, is that just something I've made up or imagined for this. I think I think that such things exist, and these are some of the most computationally expensive model in um, in her science. But I don't think it's this kind of models that are used to explore the impact of deglaciation on eruption frequency. Uh, okay. I, so it's it's all you know subject to limitations on my expertise. Which once again, it's not what I'm working on. Okay, so you you start off from what? Do you start off with a, a, a climate model or with a plume model or what? How, how does how does your work start? Exactly. So our starting point is, uh, if you like, the top of the crater. So when volcanic material is erupted through a vent, and so the starting point of our modeling work is really the rise of the volcanic plume, uh, and then how high the volcanic gases are injected. And then we have an aerosol chemistry climate model that uh, look at the conversion of these gases to sulfate aerosols and the transport around the globe and their effect on the uh, radiative balance. So do you, do you start off with a plume that's fixed or do you start off with a plume that's calculated? So we start off a plume that's calculated. So you, so, you, you, you roll your own every single time. You come up with a new plume. Exactly. And you take into account the climatic conditions, the layering of the atmosphere, the temperature of the surrounding air. So the plume itself exactly will be affected that. by climate. Exactly so talk me that. through that, because that's a really important point. So, so talk me through, in a, in a hotter world, how does the 
bloom change. I mean, it, it, like if, if the temperature is different by a couple of degrees, you wouldn't have thought that this plume of gas just coming out at several hundred degrees centigrade would really care about that one degree centigrade difference, but you're implying it does. So talk me through how that happens. Exactly. So, I mean, there is this counterintuitive intuition that, you know, one or two degree difference doesn't really matter. But what, what really governs the height reached by this volcanic plume is uh, the atmospheric stratification. So it's not really how warm the atmosphere is where you erupt, it's how fast the temperature changes in the atmosphere and that's how uh, density is stratified. Uh, that's the, that's the lapse rate, so it's the environmental lapse rate. Exactly, it's gonna yeah. be the lapse rate. Okay. So that's so, one big control. Another big control is also gonna be the uh, wind speed, uh, but, uh, it's a bigger control for extratropical eruption. And I should say that our paper for now only look at tropical eruptions. So let's let's look at the um, let's look at that the, the environmental lapse rate. So the, the the point about the environmental lapse rate is that the Earth um, heats up from sunshine, and then those parcels of air rise through the atmosphere and they expand as the pressure reduces, and so they get colder. And then you get a second heating effect, which is where the incident light, the UV light, is intercepted by the atmosphere, by the ozone layer in the stratosphere, and so the atmosphere is directly heated by the sun's rays. And so the atmosphere gets colder and colder and colder until you get to the tropopause, and that's like minus 70 degrees centigrade over the tropics, and then it gets warmer and warmer and warmer as it rises through the stratosphere. So that's your basic density, the, the temperature. Exactly. Um, stratification, right? Now, that... that, that that's going to be much more pronounced an effect when you're looking at volcanoes that go into the stratosphere, right? I guess, so you're looking at these larger eruptions. Exactly. So, so one key to understand our paper is that not all volcanic eruption impact climate the same way. Uh, volcanic plumes that inject gases directly into the stratosphere, they are also uh, have a lifetime of one to two years. So they, they have a long-lasting effect or relatively long-lasting uh, it's, of course, peanuts compared to greenhouse gases, uh, and they can spread globally, whereas volcanic plume eject gases in the troposphere, these, they are also going to be washed out after a few weeks. So it's really key whether your plume rise uh, above or below the tropopause. Okay, so your, your research is concentrating on, on um, volcanoes which may or will go into the stratosphere, is that correct? Exactly, yes. Okay, so my intuitive understanding of this is that as climate change gets worse, you have um, uh, a more of a uh, heating of the upper layers of the atmosphere as they catch more of the um, longer um, infrared rays going out of the Earth into space. And so you get heating throughout the atmosphere from that. And so you have a much less defined tropopause. So you don't get this kind of cold point. The cold point is not as cold. It's not as clear. And so it's easier for material in that plume to go into the stratosphere. Is that correct? Uh, I don't think that's quite correct. So I, I think the cold point tropopause is still fairly well defined. Uh, it's not as steep as in the present day climate. I think that's correct. Uh, the part that is correct is that the upper atmosphere, the upper troposphere at least, warm faster than the lower troposphere. Uh, and that's where it affects the lapse rate. And that's making the troposphere uh, slightly more stratified as climate is warming. Uh, the second important effect is that 
because the troposphere is warming, it's also thickening, and the cold point tropopause height is increasing as Earth gets warmer. So the, the, tropos, the tropopause gets higher, is that right? Yes, that's right. And the troposphere And how does the tropopause get higher in climate change? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I understand that. I think like the, the, the way I see this is the troposphere is warming and essentially uh, thickening. Um, and then like we really observe, even today in satellite observation, you don't need climate model to that. Uh, we do see a trend in the cold, cold point tropopause height. Uh, it's been rising by a few hundred meters uh, in satellite observations. But do you know the mechanism behind that? Why is that quite, why is that happening? I think my understanding is because the troposphere is warming uh, and then the, the, just the height of the inversion uh, is getting higher. Uh, so yes. as, it, as the troposphere gets warmer, then the, the, the point at which the coldest point occurs gets higher because you, you know, you're naturally sort of rolling back into the stratosphere as you, as you warm up the, the, the troposphere. The, the, it's not the, tropos, the, the boundaries fixed, it's just where it happens to be coldest. And then you get this inversion effect and stratification over it. And so as you warm the layer underneath, you then end up in a situation where you have, um, uh, a rise in that trop in, in, in the tropopause. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. Yes. Okay. Um, so the stratosphere, um, as I understand it, the, the the stratosphere under geoengineering, the stratosphere warms and the troposphere cools, partly because you get some infrared absorption from the on the path of the particles, but um, and then you get cooling of the ground because there's less incident radiation. I assume that the same thing happens in the um, in the case of the volcanoes, right? Yes. So you get a, a warming effect. And so doesn't don't the volcanoes directly affect where the tropopause lies? Isn't there a direct effect from that as well? So yeah, I think you would expect a, a slight decrease in the tropopause height following volcanic eruptions. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, but what about the, the temperature of the tropospores? How, do, how is that affected? And I think that would also slightly cool the cold point tropospores temperature. Oh, okay, that's maybe not... Hmm, that one is tricky because that may depend on where your volcanic cloud exactly sits. So in our paper, we, we look at two different um, type of volcanic eruption, we look at what we call moderate magnitude eruption, which under present day condition would essentially spread at the tropopause height. Uh, so so what's, and, a, what's, a, what's a moderate magnitude versus a big magnitude? So give me an example of a historic volcano yeah. um, that is a moderate versus big. Yeah, so typical moderate uh, magnitude eruption that we think about are uh, Nabro in 2011 or Merapi in 2010. So these are eruptions that occur on a yearly basis uh, frequency. Uh, yeah, and so they're, 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 they're just they're, sort of like nor, normal run of the mill eruptions that you kind of would have heard of you if you're a volcanologist, but you know they don't get in the news because they don't destroy entire cities generally, right? So some of them get in the news, and like the climatic impact is not directly related to the destructive power or the economic cost. Um, so 
that would be a daring correlation to make, I would say. Uh, but they, they don't compare to anything like uh, Pinatubo eruption, for example, which is what we typically think for a large magnitude eruption case. But what about the very large eruptions, the ones that are kind of civilization destroying eruptions? Exactly. So we haven't done very large eruption uh, in this paper, but that's certainly something that uh, we would like to look at in the future. Uh, we've conducted some simulation with Tambora size eruption, which isn't exactly maybe what you would call very large. Uh, but for which but Tambora was one in 1815. Yeah, and that caused the year without a summer, right? The year right? without a summer, exactly. So yeah. that was, I think, roughly six times, five to six times the mass injected by Pinatubo. Um, don't take my word on it. A few times more SO2 than Pinatubo, but not quite an order of magnitude larger. Um, okay. Yes. And and then you've got this kind of super volcanoes, the sort of Toba-sized ones that are, you know, kind of, planet destroying eruptions ones yes. that you can't get can't get away from right yes yes so um, we haven't done again you we haven't model we haven't done, done model something on the Toba scale no no okay fine so you're um we're, we're going to ask about co-authors earlier and you I, I mentioned it but i don't i don't think you got a chance we, to yeah we got sidetracked we did yes um so my co-authors are uh johnny stanton sykes lauren marshall Jim Haywood, Luke Abraham, and Anya Schmidt. And so most of them, except Jim Haywood, are at the University of Cambridge. Um, Johnny is a PhD student here, just finished. So congrats, Johnny, if ever you- and what, what uh, university are you at? Because we didn't, I didn't ask you. Uh, I'm also at University of Cambridge. And what department are you in? Uh, department of Geography. And I also have a hot desk in chemistry. Most of my co-authors are in chemistry. Uh, that's where the- Center for Atmospheric Sciences, and there's a strong history. In, uh, in well, atmospheric industry. sciences within chemistry in Cambridge, is that right? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, right, I'm, um, so you're, uh, you're, you've modeled these two different types of eruptions, the, you know, the, 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 the large and then the kind of annual scale ones. Now, my understanding is that the, the annual scale ones don't really get into the stratosphere. Is that correct? So under, under present-day climate, part of the aerosol would get into the stratosphere, at least. Uh, so we inject... But it goes in indirectly, so, doesn't it? So it, it, the, the plume doesn't reach the stratosphere, but then because you have um, aerosols circulating in the troposphere, they just sort of go round and round and then end up mixing in whenever you get thunderstorms and other kind of fold and tropospheric folding events that result in... Um, in the, the material going up into the stratosphere. Is that, is that how it works? Is that correct? That's, that's partly correct. The main mechanism through which it goes in the stratosphere is actually just the uh, SO2 and aerosol absorbing, absorbing radiation, uh, heating the surrounding atmosphere, and then slowly rising into the stratosphere. Yeah, we had, um, a, we had, a, whole, uh, we had a whole lecture on this. We had uh, Hongfei Yu um, mm -hmm. who talked about manipulating that, precisely that effect. Uh, in order to loft material into the stratosphere. So his, yes. his um, plan was to mix black carbon um, in, with the, um, uh, in with the stratospheric sulfur aerosol, or what would be the stratospheric sulfur aerosols in the troposphere, yes. and then allow them to rise um, by convection. So you, you, but what you're saying is that 
because these uh, particles heat up um, anyway as a result of um, infrared absorption from the sun. So they've got near infrared from sunshine because the sun is quite like half the energy from the sun comes in the near infrared, right? So yeah. you were saying that, that the stratospheric aerosols will, will rise anyway into yes. the stratosphere. Is that, is that correct? I didn't yes. know that. That's yes. quite interesting. Yes, so, that's correct. And, and we see that after quite a few eruptions. I think if you do add black carbon, like they suggest in their paper, it really boosts that uh, secondary. Yeah, supplement. yeah. So, so what sort sense. of, um, you know, how much of that happens? I mean, like, does it, does, you know, 1% or 10% or 90% of the material end up getting into the stratosphere like that? Because mm -hmm. from the larger eruptions, there's an awful lot of it, isn't there? I mean, you, you do have a very large dose of material that ends up going into the stratosphere from the bigger eruptions, which is why Pinatubo was so effective in changing the climate relative to these smaller volcanoes that have a much lower effect, right? Well, I think for Pinatubo, so like the gases were mostly injected directly into the stratosphere. Uh, yeah. So that what I mean is that... What... But for this, for this more moderate magnitude eruption, uh, so under present-day climate condition, uh, where we find that they rise at the tropopause or just below it, most of the gases, uh, say 90%, end up in the stratosphere and having long-lasting uh, climate effect. Well, so even if and, they, okay, so let me run, run that one past me again, right? So you were saying that even for these moderate magnitude eruptions, you're still seeing 90% of the material going into the stratosphere, is that correct? Yes, but don't forget that the plume, the plume itself rise within a kilometer or less of the, uh, uh, from the tropopause height. Essentially, the plume height is equal to the tropopause height. So, uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is like, I, I'm really surprised that so much material is getting lofted into the stratosphere. So just, I just want to check that I've not misheard you. So are you saying that from a moderate magnitude eruption, you're still getting something like 90% um, of the material ultimately ends up in the stratosphere. Is that right? Yes, yes. The majority of it ends up in the stratosphere. And is that a microscopic effect or is it a macroscopic effect? Is it your training, is, is that your, because you're in training individual aerosols or is that because you're moving bulk material? I'm not 100% sure what you mean by microscopy versus microscopy. Well, is it, is it individual aerosols that are getting lifted or is it the whole thing that's getting lifted? Well, I think the aerosol cloud as a whole is getting lifted um, and also part of it is directly injected into the stratosphere. Um, and so what, um, what tools are you using to, to, to analyze it? So you've got a general circulation model and a plume model. Have you got other tools as well? No, so it's not really the only tools that we use in this study, one plume model and one general circulation model. The plume model okay. we use to really fix the height at which to inject. Yeah. Uh, so you want, the that's to understand, system. that's to understand, you know, the, the, the actual direct effect. So it, talk to me about the computational load. So the, the, the computational work that's done, I mean, are you, are you spending 95% of your computational effort on climate computations and 5% of your effort on volcanic computations or is it the other way around yes no it's like 99.9 percent .9 of the computational effort on the um, aerosol climate modeling 
The plume model that we use is a rather simple plume model. It's called a one-dimensional plume model. Uh, I spent most of my PhD testing and validating these models and also comparing uh, their predicted effect of climate change on plume rise, which so, is also so a more so sophisticated three-dimensional plume model. So uh, by one-dimensional plume model, if you could just like help me understand that. So what you're what you're assuming there is that the plume model is just basically a stick with varying densities of material up and down that stick. Is that exactly. is that correct? Exactly. Yes. And from a climate point of view, that's good enough because it doesn't really matter that you know as long as you know how high the material gets, it doesn't really matter how far sideways it gets because it doesn't really make any difference. Yes, exa exactly. At the resolution of the climate model, we don't. Uh, we, we don't really care about how fast the plume is rising. What yeah, because be you've slightly... got like a 10, 10 kilometer grid cell or whatever, so it doesn't really care about the, the, where the plume is positioned within that because it can't resolve. The, the plume might only be 10 kilometers wide and therefore it's all in a grid cell. So the extra dimensions don't give you any advantage, right? It's, it's partly right like there, there are there would be advantages in using a more sophisticated plume model, plume model sorry uh, part of it would be to get a more detailed vertical injection profile because in terms of vertical resolution the, the plume thickness would be a few grid cell of the climate uh, of the climate model resolution uh, so we do have a parameterized injection profile that is derived from actually more complex three-dimensional plume model and then in terms of horizontal resolution, although you are right, the initial spread of the plume is governed by uh, gravity currents and, uh, and that's not going into the climate model. So the, uh, if you want the dynamical regime uh, governing the plume spread in the climate model isn't like in the initial spreading phase, is not uh, physically accurate. Uh, but when you're doing when you're doing this modeling, right? So the, you've got this one-dimensional model, which I, I I understand. But surely you've got like quite a bit of stirring beyond that. I mean, it, it, the, the, it's quite a dramatic event, isn't it? A, um, a volcanic eruption. It, it, it's more perturbation than the atmosphere would normally experience. So aren't you kind of missing quite a bit of an effect from, you know, from these these changes, right? I mean, aren't, aren't you losing a lot from not monitoring what's going on? So what sort of changes are you thinking about? Well, uh, the, and the, the, also, again, what I want to highlight is that uh, we've done a few studies before that one comparing how climate change would affect plume rise in a 3D and 1D plume model. Uh, and so the 1D model result that we use in this study are backed up by a 3D plume model. Well, let, let me let me explain my point in a bit more depth, right? To, to, to get my point across as to what I think might be happening. So let's imagine okay. that volcanoes didn't emit any material at all into the atmosphere that had any direct effect, right? Uh, uh, the, the, so you, you don't have these, there's no sulfur or anything like that or ash. Just the physical injection of heat from a volcano creates quite a lot of stirring and movement in the atmosphere that moves everything else around, right? So is a, one, a 1D model obviously doesn't ca capture that because the 1D model doesn't look for anything other than 
the you know the distribution of these volcanic materials but doesn't the, the heat injection and the physical injection of gases have other climatic effects or or is it just the earth is so big that it doesn't really matter so you mean direct heat emission you, by, the, by you, the volcano affecting affecting the you, earth's energy budget at a global scale well, is that, is well, that no, what, no 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 what what i mean is like Obviously, the, the heat in a volcano is not going to heat up the entire world, right? But the stirring effect of a volcano going off, I mean, the atmosphere doesn't get stirred as much um, as it does by a volcano in normal circumstances, does it? Because, the, you know, you don't have a situation where you're... It, it, I mean, a volcano is not dissimilar from a nuclear bomb when it goes off, right? And, and that kind of degree of mixing and all the kind of soot and dust and other stuff that you have in the atmosphere get stirred up a lot by the injected heat right so does that have any climate effect does the volcano have any significant climate effect or is it just the addition of sulfur that makes the difference i think some of the most visual maybe not quite visual but um effect that we see can be gravity wave um, uh, triggered by volcanic eruptions uh, but i don't think this has any any implications for the global climate response? So you can de you can detect it. It does stuff the atmosphere, but you know what you what what it does doesn't directly make any difference to climate. It's just like a, a perturbation, but it doesn't have any it doesn't have any knock on effects, right? I don't think so. Not to my knowledge, it, it doesn't have any or like there is no demonstrated impact on the aerosol cycle and the subsequent uh, global okay, climate fine. impact. So, so that's why you can use a one day model because it doesn't do anything other than, um, uh, other than um, interject, you know, from a climatology point of view, it doesn't do anything important other than inject sulfur, right? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's still a simplification, but yes. Yeah, so you, Help me understand. So you, you, we've gone through in some depth the methodology that you're using, the, the, the way that the effects that you've um, identified are, are playing out. Um, you know, basically, you're saying it's an injection of sulfur. You, you, you get a difference in the um, uh, in, in the effect as a result of the size of these volcanoes. The, the medium ones and the large ones are quite different in terms of the effect that that you see um, and you are uh, you've explained how the um, the climate changes the the, the, the structure of the atmosphere changes the the, lap, the environmental lapse rate changes as a result of climate change. So step us through in depth if you can how the effect that you've identified changes according to the um, the amount of climate change that we have. So in a in a in a high climate change world. You, you've got this effect of the tropopause moving up as the, as the lower levels of the atmosphere heat up, and then just by default, that means the tropopause moves up, right? So, what does that? It's fundamentally what you're de determining that the medium-sized volcanoes don't get up into the into the stratosphere, whereas the larger ones do, and they make more difference. Is that is that correct? I, I, if that is correct, then I kind of understand how it works. Um, yes. But I. But, but what about the large ones? Because you said so. the medium ones basically don't, the tropopause goes up a bit and therefore the medium ones don't quite get there, right? So it's like a basketball hoop that you move up so it's nine feet tall. So shorter players can just never get quite into the basketball, right? Exactly. So the effect for the moderate eruption, it's a quite simple story. It's exactly what you say. Tropopause rise, the plume height, 
doesn't quite like it's lower compared to tropopause in a warm. Why does that matter? If you if you said that, I mean, you 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 previously said that the um uh that the uh. 90% of the material gets into the stratosphere anyway. So, I, I mean, that, that wasn't my understanding. I thought it was only stratos, stratovolcanoes so, that made a really significant difference to the, um, uh, the or large volcanoes. Sorry, a stratovolcano is a, is a type of volcano, isn't it? So you get stratovolcanoes, which are the tall ones, and the flat ones are the shield ones, right? And that's actually down to the rock type. But what I meant by stratovolcano was which ones get into the strato, stratosphere, right? And, and what you're saying is that, that even the ones that don't get into the stratosphere still ultimately do get into the stratosphere because the material that they inject rises by um, convection into the stratosphere. Is that correct? Uh, it's not quite correct. It, it still depends on the plume height. So under the present-day climate, uh, the moderate volcanic eruption we are talking about reach the tropopause or right below. By right below, I mean maybe 0.5 kilometer. And so in that case, most of the aerosol does get lifted up to the stratosphere. Now the future warmer climate, the plume height is roughly two kilometer below the tropopause. Okay, so and what you're saying case, is a only a small, small difference. Only a small fraction of the aerosol can get lifted high enough that it ends yeah. up in the stratosphere. So, so what you're saying is you picked a class of volcanoes that are, you know, very close to this limit, right? So they're, they're almost getting there, yeah? Yes, exactly. So, so we did pick a class that is quite sensitive to this tropical height change, but also through that many tropical eruptions nowadays rise roughly to the tropical height. So it's, it's quite common. Yeah. But you're also, but you're, you, you kind of gamed your, um, the set of, uh, uh, of, experiments that you've done to try and maximize the effect right i mean you could if you pick very small volcanoes that didn't have much of a plume at all then you wouldn't really see anything right exactly yeah, that's completely correct and vice versa okay. when we pick large magnitude eruption like a second case study a pinatubo size one uh obviously it's to inject in the stratosphere regardless of the background climate okay so these uh, help me understand where the large I, I get where the medium ones are less important right but what I don't understand about your work is why the um, why the large ones become more significant. Yes, the, the story for the large one is a bit more complex. And so, if we start again with the rise of the plume, there's the first effect that the plume height actually increases as climate gets warmer for this large volcanic plume, and that's because the mm -hmm. stratification in the stratosphere decreases. So once the volcanic plume reaches the stratosphere under under warmer climate, it gets a bit easier uh, for it to rise. Okay, so the, let me just explain what I understand that to be. Because so what you're saying is that the, the the stratosphere gets hotter as you go up. It's got a reverse lapse rate to the troposphere because yes. it's heated directly by the sun. Okay, yes. and so basically it's like the sun doesn't shine as hard into the lower levels of the stratosphere as it does into the upper levels of the stratosphere because a lot of the UV energy has been taken out. And the UV energy is the only thing that's being, um, uh, the rest of it is just passing through. So UV energy just fades and fades and fades as you go to the bottom of the stratosphere until it basically stops absorbing at all. And that, that, that's where the stratosphere pretty much stops and it becomes the troposphere, right? Yes. Okay. So that, um, that process um, is... 
what what why why under global warming does that is that if that's dominated by solar heating and that's why that's the fundamental reason why you get this working the way that it does because you get this solar heating effect why does that solar heating effect change in under global warming i can't really understand why that would happen so to be honest i'm not quite sure why under global warming uh, the lapse rate in the in the stratosphere is changing. So I'm not sure if it's uh, yeah. I mean, well, I can't work out either. But then again, it's not my area of expertise, so I can be excused. Yeah, yeah. The the only thing I can say is that that's something that's consistent uh, across climate models, at least the. Yeah, so it's a, it's a well-known effect, but you, it's a well-known effect, but just you personally can't remember why it happens, right? No, no, I can't. Okay, I can't fine. Explain you the mechanism. <laughs> okay, so, but, but that I mean that seems kind of obvious that under climate change that that effect, you know, if that's a robust result, and I, I don't have the knowledge to know whether it is or isn't, but if it is a robust result, it, it would explain pretty neatly why you get the effect that you're reporting, right? Because obviously, the, if you get a the, the 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 convective the convective movement of that material is dominated by the temperature difference, right? So if you're if you're if, if you if you have a high temperature difference, then you would have um, a large convective force causing um, the material to be to, to rise. Um, whereas if you have um, a low temperature difference, low temperature difference, then the, the, the plume tends to flatten out and lose its identity, right? Uh, that's true, but then I think what you're talking about, what you're saying essentially is that the more buoyant, buoyant the plume is, the higher it rises. Yeah, yeah, uh, but, the, but, 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 but the climatic effect of that is interesting. So the, 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 it's an indirect effect, isn't it? Because the stratospheric sulfur aerosols, don't, they don't have much different effect if they're higher um, than if they're lower. But what does change very much is their lifetime because the particles are quite small and they're they just are sort of suspended in the air and they have to fall several kilometers before they end up getting into the turbulent layer in the troposphere and then they get washed out by the rain and so if they start off at 25 kilometers then they've got to fall down five kilometers before they wash out whereas if they start at 21 kilometers they've only got to fall down one kilometer before they wash out right uh, exactly, it would be a bit more than one kilometer. Yeah, no, I guess under the, the principle is the same. The, yes. yeah, the, the, the yes. lifetime yes. of the aerosol is governed by how long it takes to physically fall out of the stratosphere, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And, and the climatic effect is proportional to that effect. So yes. you, you can crudely think about it sinking at a fairly constant rate. And then when it kind of runs out of runway, it just falls out of the sky into a rain cloud. And then that's the end of that. And it disappears down and becomes part of the ocean, right? And yes. so the longer it lasts before it ends up getting scooped up into a thunderstorm, the, the more effect it has on climate um, and yeah. before it, you know, before it's wiped out. Right. So um, yes. that's, you know, that's that's how it happens fundamentally. So what. Um, quantitatively, what have you observed here? You talked us through the qualitative mechanism, but, you know, how much difference will this make? Yes. So before I go there, there's a second part to this story. So the first part is the plume height rising a bit higher. The second yeah. part is the transport from the tropics to the extratropics of the aerosol getting faster 
as climate is warming. And that's because the that's because the so that's the production circulation right? accelerates. And yes. why does that happen? Why does that happen and on so, the global warming? And so this why why is the production circulation getting faster? Yeah, well, well I mean, I, it's not an okay. in, that's not intuitive to me that that would occur. Yes, again, it's not an area where I'm an expert. Uh, I think it's driven by uh, wave activity, but um, yeah, I, I I don't have the expertise to discuss the exact mechanism why the production secretion is accelerating. Okay. So the, the brood option circulation accelerates under climate change, and that results in a, uh, an acceleration of these particles. They, they move faster through the atmosphere, and then, you know, as a result of going through the atmosphere, then they would... Uh, my understanding of the, the brood option circulation causes particles to rise in the tropics and then to fall at the poles, yeah? Yes. yes. So it's similar to, like, that, the, the Hadley cell, right? Yes. Um, uh, and then the, um, so it's almost like a convective effect, crudely. Um, so uh, talk, talk me through sort of why and, and how that happens. So you, 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 the, the virid of circulation in, increases and therefore these particles tend to hang around. Do they hang around longer because they, they go in relatively low in the stratosphere and then they rise for you know, a longer period of time, or how, how does it how does it all work out? So, so there's a competitive uh, effect here that the, the polymerase increase, so that tends to increase the lifetime of the aerosol particle, but then they get transported faster. And that later effect dominates in the future climate. So overall, their lifetime is slightly reduced in a warmer climate. So, they, uh, so although they get lofted higher, they end up ultimately falling out quicker how does that work because they are transported faster to the poles uh, and it's exactly that uh, general circulation pattern that you described where once they are the pole they tend to uh, uh, that's where aerosol are lost to the stratosphere that's where this particle settles uh, okay so they, they they basically the whole thing kind of just plays a bit faster when when yes. um okay so you, you've got this this process where these these particles get this, the particle extinction is occurring more quickly under climate change because the atmosphere is getting the stratosphere is getting stirred up a bit more and these particles are then plonking out into the polar ocean or the circumpolar ocean a bit quicker, right? Yes, that's correct. Right, uh, but then there is another competitive effect which uh, which makes this large magnitude tropical eruption story complicated. Is that because the the aerosol cloud also gets spread to the extratropic faster? There's less coagulation uh, between aerosol particles, and they, they don't grow as fast. Okay, so the, the aerosol particles start to form, and then they get kind of whipped out of the way, um, so that the sulfur dioxide, which would otherwise condense onto the surface of these particles, then doesn't condense onto the surface of the particles because they're not there because they've been pulled away elsewhere um, and the, that's why you don't get this coagulation is that is that correct exactly and on top of that uh change in the stratospheric temperature also increase the nucleation rate of this aerosol particle and that also contribute to forming more aerosol particles but that are smaller in terms of so diameter. The, strat the stratosphere gets what warmer or colder i'm not quite sure 
the stratosphere gets colder uh, as, on, as on the climate change. Yes, yes. So we we okay. warm the troposphere and we cool the stratosphere. Okay, and that effect is reversed by the addition of either volcanic particles or um, geoengineering particles, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Fine. Right. So, um, how, talk me through that nucleation effect because I, I didn't know anything about that, and that's kind of interesting. So, how does that effect work? Yes. So, I, I also, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be frustrating because I'm not a volcano expert. I'm not a climate expert. I'm somewhere in between. Uh, but essentially, my understanding of it is that the colder the temperature, the faster this uh, sulfur uh, aerosol are going to nucleate. Okay, so uh, it's like a like almost like a kind of um, a frosting effect, right? So yes. on a cold day, you would form more frost or condensation on a cold bathroom window, yes. and so that you're just accelerating that process by having um, a colder temperature. It's just a physical process, right? Yes. I'm not sure. Okay. I think you have a very nice picture. Uh, I'm not 100% sure the physical mechanisms uh, are comparable, but yes, that's essentially what's happening. Yeah, I mean, but crudely, that's what's going on, right? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. fine. Right, so um, that that's all very interesting, and I think I've got a reasonable grasp on how that all works now, um, hopefully. Um, but what I don't understand is whether this has any effect on geoengineering so i assume that you're reasonably familiar with geoengineering because you volunteered to come on our podcast so um obviously the geoengineering is doing what you're describing but doing it deliberately and trying to change the climate accordingly so what what lessons does what you're doing have for the deliberate modification of the climate system how, how, how would how would we learn from your work to to you know better apply deliberate injection of sulfur dioxide yes i guess one um you know one first line of area uh where you may want to think about geoengineering is just simply oh tropopause rise uh, tropopause height is rising under the future so we need to make sure that whatever geoengineering system we design uh it flies a bit higher uh, than it might uh, otherwise do right yeah aerosol ends up in the stratosphere could be the injection system is higher or that could be uh, you add black carbon to your uh, injection mix so that there's more absorption and then the lofting um, of uh, the aerosol is more um, intense and they end up in the stratosphere regardless. Uh, yeah. yeah ju just make sure to account for that. Uh, because under, under an upper end uh, climate scenario, I think the tropopause height ends up 1.5 kilometer higher than it is nowadays by the end of the century. Uh, I, I guess it's climate model dependent, but it should so be. So 1.5 kilometers is quite a lift. What, what, right? I mean, one to 1.5. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's not a small change. There's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not huge, but it's also not well, it's a five, uh, it's a 5%, negligible. It's a five, yeah, it's a 5% five, five increase, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got a situation where the, you know, a major part of the atmosphere is, the major atmospheric boundary is moving. I and mean, that would be, you know, to, to put it intuitively, that would be like a river moving, say, 100 kilometers down the coast, right? It's not yeah. a small change, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. Um, so, that... What I mean that that's not direct effect of your research, is it? I mean, we, we know 
You, because you researched the, the tropopause. Yes, pores, yes, no, the no, the movement. Yeah, the tropopause yeah, yeah. movement is already known from yes. other stuff, right? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, the other question that uh, I'm thinking about in terms of geoengineering is, as the Brewer Dobson situation accelerates, uh, does it indeed, you know, if it does form, if it does result in smaller aerosol particles, which are more efficient at uh, scattering sunlight, then that could slightly increase the efficiency of geoengineering. Now, okay, any so, sort of... Uh, so what you're saying is that, that just like with your aerosol particles, the uh, from volcanoes, as we inject into a faster bird option circulation, if we're injecting a single, like a single point or a single latitude, then it will work a bit better under climate change than it would without climate change, because um, you're, you've got this effect where the um, these the, the the aerosol nuclei that you're forming are being sort of swept away more rapidly um, than they would otherwise be swept away, right? Uh, yes. Okay. But again, that that's that's a that's a, a background effect that we already know about, right? I mean, the, the, the acceleration of the brood obstacle circulation isn't a direct. It's not a learning from your research, is it? It's something that we that we that we've known about already. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. No, so like what, 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 what our research is about is how this background effect that we know about, how this affects the volcanic sulfate aerosol life cycle and the yeah, responding okay. radiation forcing. That's really what our research is about. Okay. But, what but, I want but, to, to point out is that any geoengineering study that would use the same kind of model as we use would also see these effects and and quantify directly implications for geoengineering. So yeah, but 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 uh, there's another there's another way of looking at this, right? So you're you're describing the effect of um, geoengineering of of, of um, uh, the the climate on the volcanic aerosols, and you're explaining you know quite well why you have got the results that you've got, which is all very interesting. But the other thing that people might I think want to know about is um, understanding how uh, your, you know, what would happen in a superposition event? Now, I know you're not directly working on a superposition, but it's kind of relevant, right? So, you're, if, if we were to have a superposition event where we have volcanoes, I mean, naturally, if these, if these medium sized volcanoes are happening annually, then inevitably you're going to have superposition events, right? Yes, you can't avoid it. So maybe can what, I clarify by superposition event? I mean, one volcanic eruption happening close enough in time to another volcanic eruption so that the first one may influence the second one. Am I well, correct? Yeah, that would be an example of superposition. But what I was meaning by my question is superposition of geoengineering and volcanism. So yes, it, it's okay. not it's not it's not wrong to say what you've said, but it it, it just wasn't exactly what I, I had see, in mind. I see. Okay, right? okay, yes. Uh, we are currently exploring superposition event, actually. There's one, uh, so it's not my work, it's the work of uh, one of my co-authors, Johnny Stonson-Syke, who is a PhD student. Uh, but, and there is one other paper by Hans Brenner, I think. Uh, Hans what? Sorry, Brenner, is that right? Brenner, I can check out. Brenner, right, and okay. Confirm after after the podcast if you want. But that's yeah, I mean, just as a general point to all our listeners or readers, as I normally say, um, we do try and include links not only for the 
papers that we're discussing, but also other relevant papers um, in the description. So if you are the kind of nerdy person who likes nothing better to go than to go and um, uh, explore in more depth the podcast that you listen to while you are having your porridge in the morning, um, then you can follow the links in the descriptions and learn a bit more about the stuff that we waffle on about. Yeah, perfect. And this, the, the main thing that this paper and our paper, so the paper by Hans Brenner, I think, and I hope I don't mispronounce uh, their name, uh, an upcoming paper, is that when you have both volcanic eruption and geoengineering, uh, overall the aerosol from both events uh, combine together and grow faster, and that reduces uh, the cooling effect uh, that you would get from yeah, an so you eruption get, so you alone. Yeah, you get more. You get more extinct. So the total mass of sulfur goes up, but you have a yes. much less than proportional increase in cooling. Exactly. So my understanding of this, now I might be incorrect, is that it's not that it's not that you get less cooling overall. Is that you get less cooling per kilo because the extra material that you put in just tends to stick to your existing nuclei, and then they fall out more rapidly than they otherwise would have fallen out. Right? Exactly. That's absolutely correct. Okay. Um, and then what we what we find in our simulation again it's not published work it's not even uh, submitted I think it should be submitted next month hopefully but is that because of the volcanic aerosol coagulate with the geoengineering aerosol um, and make so this them grow and fall faster? Okay, but this is work that you're actually doing yourself. Is that correct? Yep. This this is led by one of my co-authors. Uh, so it's not. Oh, right. Okay. I'm, so I'm, are you on, are you I'm, on that paper or not? Yes. Okay, so you're, you're looking, so you, you're now talking about, just to clarify, I mean, I, I understand you people who are kind of half listening while getting drunk or uh, uh, eating their food or whatever it is that they do when they're listening to podcasts might, might miss this. So what we're doing here is like a kind of change. We, thought we were talking about one specific paper and then we're talking about another one which is yet to be published. So you're now talking solely about a superposition paper, is that right? Which is a new project that's yet to be published. Is that yes. correct? Yes, exactly. Right, fine. Yes. So this this superposition paper that is yet to be published and therefore not subject to usual peer review scrutiny says what? Yes. So it's exactly what you were saying. Proportionally, there would be less cooling uh, in case of a superposition event, which means when there yeah. is a volcanic eruption combined with geoengineering. Uh, yeah. And and also an interesting effect that we find is that um, there is some sort of undershoot in the mass of aerosol in the stratosphere. So if you do geoengineering and you aim for a constant mass of aerosol, if yeah. there's a volcanic eruption, it makes the aerosol fall out faster. And yeah. after the eruption, maybe two to three years after, you'd actually end up with less aerosol than you had okay, before so you get like a kind of It's almost like a turn, termination shock event. So you get an initial pulse of additional cooling where you've added more material and then you get the reverse effect because you've inadvertently stripped all of your um uh all of your geoengineering aerosols out without meaning to but they've all fallen out and then you you end up on a kind of catch-up where you might have to put a bit more in for a bit to kind of get rid of yeah. that effect and even it out again okay exactly. and that's really interesting it's, that's it's nothing that's as big uh, i just want to add that. it's nothing as big as a termination event no, but it's uh, a kind of like a mini termination. It's like a, but like there a is small there is a bit of time to recover the the aerosol load that you were aiming for before the eruption. 
Yeah, I mean, the, but it's an interesting effect because uh, you know it's count it's kind of counterintuitive. You don't you don't think that adding material will lead to less cooling, but it's when you step through the kind of time sequence of it, it's actually pretty logical, right? So you get an additional um, cooling pulse initially, but then that cooling pulse comes at the expense of your, you know, you you kind of blow all your aerosols out and then they, they're all lost and you've got to make a new lot. And then during that time where you've got to make a new lot, then you're, you're kind of aerosol light and they, therefore you have a bit more warming than you would otherwise have. So although it's not a kind of full-blown termination shock apocalypse, it's, Nevertheless, it's like a little bit less cooling than you would want or need, right? Yes, yes. That's pretty exactly. cool. That's a really cool result. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a shame that we didn't have the chance to come and um, uh, well, you know, rip that one apart. I mean, we've we've only got a, you know a little bit of time to go through that, which is you know it's not a problem because you know it's it's early results and stuff like that. But um, you know, just to, just as a favour to you, I'll, as I as I got the opportunity, I'll reject that paper too. Um, so uh, you should be humbled and appreciative of reviewers, reviewer two's efforts to reject all of your work and not just the one that you've come on to talk about. Um, that sounds good. I hope you're grateful. So um, that's pretty cool, very interesting. Um, and it gives you a bit more expertise to talk about superposition events in general rather than just your um, uh, the specific paper that we've come on to chat about so we've gone through a few things and learned a few important things um we've learned uh, if i could just recollect briefly that you're french obviously that's a important note of caution for everyone to be aware of we've learned that um there are some well-known changes in the atmosphere notably that the tropopause height gets a bit higher in global warming and the brewer dobson circulation gets a bit stronger and these have effects for both geoengineering and volcanic aerosols um, We've learned that because of that tropical height, um, the medium-sized volcanoes are less effective. And we've learned that the stratosphere um, gets uh, a bit more stratified. And so there is a, uh, the, 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 the plume, once it gets into the stratosphere, is less buoyant from these larger eruptions. And therefore the big eruptions don't go and spread themselves out vertically as much as they would do under a lower geoengineering scenario when you've gone into this kind of higher geoengineering scenario, uh, sorry, a higher climate change scenario, you, you get you get less Brewer-Dobson circulation um, and you get less buoyancy and therefore these larger volcanoes have less effect in a, in a, in a warmer world. That's the kind of the, the, the sort of key lessons that we've learned. Uh, Is that right? I think you got that one... Uh... The wrong way around so in under a future warmer climate this yeah uh large volcanic eruption would have a bigger climatic impact because the aerosol gets smaller and scatter more sunlight scatter sunlight more uh, okay so right Ron, right i've got i've obviously got confused here so i thought that you would have so yeah there's a key something i don't normally get things fundamentally wrong here so Step me through which bit I've got wrong. I get the I, I reject your review. You reject, you're, you're quite a liberty to reject, uh, reject my review and, 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 and state that the, the reviewer is poorly chosen, doesn't know what he's talking about, and is not qualified to review your paper. In fact, everyone should be doing that on this podcast because that's very much the case. But the brood option circulation gets faster so that so the, the material is, the, the sulfur dioxide is swept away or the aerosols that are formed are swept away. And so you have a, a better mixing and then you form more particles, like a small, a, a larger number of smaller particles. And they're much, much more effective because for every 
you know, for, for you, not only do you get them the right size to reflect the light, but they're also much more mass efficient if they're small, right? So that's a huge effect if you get these particles swept away. But I thought you, you described also that the buoyancy, so that the, the top of the stratosphere was warmer under a climate change scenario than it is under a no climate change scenario. And therefore the buoyant plume couldn't get as far into the stratosphere as it would otherwise do. Is what you're saying that that, that buoyancy effect is dominated by the increase in the Brewer Dobson circulation. So it's, it's just mm. not as important or, or do I just misunderstand that? No, so, so that's somewhere where we got uh, sidetracked by another question. Uh, but what really matters is, is not that the stratosphere get warmer, that doesn't really affect the plume buoyancy flux. What matters is that it gets less stratified. And so the plume height actually increases for this eruption that can reach the So under, in a warm, okay, so step, step me apart. My, so in a warmer world, there's less stratification in the stratosphere. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and why is that? Is that because the, is that and, related to the cold point on the stratosphere moving that, or what? what so that, that's, that the, that's the part I couldn't explain to you. It's all related to how the lapse rate is changing in the lower stratosphere as hers gets warmer. But why, why does that lapse rate, rate change? Because if, if the stratosphere gets, um, I'm, I'm getting confused again and losing which way around this works, but you're, you're saying that the, that the buoyancy effect is, the, the, ah, this is really frustrating because you're now explaining this three, to me three times and I don't get it. So um, uh, heaven help all our readers and listeners um, who are not going to understand this at all. So in a warmer climate, what yeah. happens to the stratosphere in terms of its temperature and stratification? We're going to get this right this time. I'm not going to screw it up one more time. So explain it again. So in a warmer we'll climate, to... by warmer, we mean warmer the surface. Yeah. Uh, the stratosphere is getting colder. And the stratosphere gets colder. Why? In a warmer climate. Uh, okay, you are catching me off guard. I'm. I don't think I can explain that at the moment. I would okay. Need to, well, no worries. Like I, we, I we don't check. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. You have to check. Warmer, but we can, we can accept it as canonical, right? <laughs> so it, the the stratosphere gets colder in a warmer climate, right? Yes. And therefore, but it's and therefore, it's, what, it's not directly therefore. It gets colder, but that cooling is not uniform with height. The lapse rate is also changing. And the effect yeah. is that it gets less stratified. It's and less that, stratified. Yes. And, that, and that's what matters for volcanic plume rise. The less stratified okay. the background environment, right. so the higher it, it, it rises. If the stratosphere is getting cooler in global warming, then why would it get less stratified? Because are you saying it's the top of the stratosphere that gets cooler or the bottom of the stratosphere that gets cooler? The... It would, ne it would necessarily so, be the top, but why would the top cool down in a warmer world? I don't understand what effect causes... Yeah, no, at, at least, the, cool at least the, the top. And by the top here, I'm only talking about 30 kilometers. It's really, yeah, yeah, yeah. really not at the top of the stratosphere. We are just, uh, you know, it's higher than the tropopause. But, but, but the aerosols that, evaporate that over faster. that layer, right? The aerosols, yes. as far as I understand, they just turn back to gas when the yeah. pressure reduces... At the top, at the top of the stratosphere, they they just yes. go back to being gas again, so they have no climatic impact because they're not little shiny balls. They're just a gas that floats around and doesn't do anything, right? Yes, that's correct. 
Okay. Yeah. So that's in a, yeah, but, in a, in a, but in a, in a, in a, your question is why does it cool faster at thirty yeah, so kilometers than twenty, which is what I couldn't explain. In a warmer world, the thirty kilometer high point in the stratosphere gets colder, and that means that you have a less stratified stratosphere. Yes. So the, the, the bottom of the stratosphere moves up a bit, so the tropopause moves up, and then the, the, and the, and the top of the stratosphere gets colder where it's hot in a standard world that's not been subject to global warming, it gets a bit colder at that point. And so the, if you imagine kind of temperature strikes going up the stratosphere, then those temperature stripes are a bit more sort of spread out and, and you don't get quite so high up in temperature um, bands uh, under a global warming. But but you're you're saying that you're un I can understand that the stratification effect is dom is important, but I don't understand why, and I don't think you were able to explain either why the stratosphere gets colder in the global warming scenario. Is that correct? That you're not able to explain that point? Yes, yes, that's correct. And so the, the plume goes into the stratosphere and the the it rises further because you have this. The, 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 the higher layers of the stratosphere are a bit colder. And so you don't get um, you don't get so much of a, it's almost like a kind of squashing down effect. And that squashing down effect is reduced as the stratosphere gets colder. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Fine. Okay. Well, I think I've got that. Um, so um, I have to, when I listen back, I'll have to work out how many times I've got that wrong and in what direction. So ho hopefully, I, I may be partly responsible for that or fully. Well, I'm going to blame you French. anyway. So yes. um, I will. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'd like to award my myself a wooden spoon for this episode because I think this is probably the worst and most confusing explanation of a physical phenomenon that we've got on any of the podcast episodes we've done. So. Um, uh, a big slow clap for Andrew and his podcast hosting today. But we, never mind, we got there in the end. Um, we, so we've learned um, about all of these things and some of the superposition effects from your new paper. Um, so is there anything that you haven't covered or anyone you'd like to give a shout out to or um, uh, anything else that you'd like to talk about? Even Brexit. Uh, let's not go to Brexit, please. Uh... And yeah, I, th I think we've covered a lot of bases. There's something I would like to say uh, and why you should reject our paper is that for now it only uses one uh, aerosol chemistry climate model. And so obviously we would like to test Do how it. this climate volcano feedback behave in different models. Okay, so my understanding of this, consensus. and I'm probably going to get this wrong. So what you, you have is a um, an ensemble of scenarios. You have like small... Um, uh, like small variations of starting conditions. And then you take those ensemble members and you run them on different models. You have a multi-model or a model into comparison study. So you might, for example, have 30 ensemble members and run it on five different climate models to get a more accurate picture of what's going on. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah, that's what okay. you would like and so to how many picture. how many ensemble members did you have in your model? Uh, 10 for each eruption scenario and climate scenario. Okay. Oh, one thing we didn't cover, which is important, is where these eruptions are. So you said they're in the tropics. Are they at zero degrees or are they? No, we, we, we blew the volcano at the Mount Pinatubo location. So 15 degrees north uh, in the Philippines. 
Okay, but you didn't do an equivalent one in the Southern Hemisphere, right? No, no. Okay. Um, right. Okay. But that, well, but, that's all... but that's another important question is how, you know, how would that differ for an eruption in the Southern Hemisphere, in the extratropics or Northern Hemisphere, extratropical? Okay. So you've got an opportunity um, to do. So if you didn't tune your injection location with your ensemble, then what were you tuning? Was it the injection height or the background climate or what? It was. It was the intensity, which is also called mass eruption rate uh, sometimes, so essentially how much mass comes per second from the vent. And that's really what governs the plume height, but it is modulated by uh, atmospheric conditions. So both this intensity and also just how much SO2 uh, sulfur dioxide is emitted by the eruption. Okay, so basically the amount of stuff that comes out and the amount of that stuff or the proportion of that stuff, which is sulfurous, that's what you're varying in your ensemble. Yes, I would more say the rate of stuff that comes out. Okay, right? so the, so and, the, the, the and the total, it, right? yes, and the total amount of sulfur emitted. But the background climate didn't change. When we also changed the background climate, we had two different ones to test how we'd compare in the future upper end uh, climate, upper end in terms of uh, global warming scenario, and a present day climate. Yeah, so we had two different. More, but... Two different eruption types, two different climates. Two different eruption types and two different climates. But you said that you had 10 in total. So what was the rest of that? Oh, and so that for, was, each, for, for each eruption type and climate, we ran ensemble of 10 simulation, meaning 10 different. Oh, right. Okay. So you've actually done quite a few different simulations. There, right? Yes. Okay. All right. And so you, you and, and, and the idea of that is that the model that the, you, you, it's possible that you have a situation where just by kind of pure random luck, you end up with some weird result, right? And the idea of using an ensemble is that you don't end up with a kind of, uh, you know, like just a, imagine when you play billiards, right? It's, and you, you hit the ball, eventually it can kind of just bounce so many times around the table that something incredibly strange happens that wouldn't normally happen. And it's only because you did it at that exact correct angle that it caused that problem. And what you're saying yes. is by using an ensemble, it avoids the risk that you end up with this weird result, which you think is reliable, but completely isn't. Because yes, you didn't exactly. know. So essentially yeah. you want to quantify uncertainty and spread in each ensemble member. So it's signal to noise. Yeah, yeah, Racial yeah. And, and to avoid these kind of weird artifacts that end up, you know, potentially ruining your results because you don't realize they're not real, right? Yes, or even some effect could be real. Say your eruption occurs on a very windy day, and so the plume height yeah. happens to be very low, and you feel it's a climate effect, but just bad luck, your eruption occurs during a storm or a tropical cyclone. Okay. Uh, now, um, before you go, I just want to distract you with a completely left field question that you might not know anything about. Now, looking at the plume lofting models that Pongfei Yu came up with in the Gao paper, we interviewed Pongfei Yu, but the paper is led by Gao, so it's known as a Gao paper, right? Um, yeah. it, it, uh, looking at the, the lofting techniques that we've discussed, so just to recap, you said earlier that like 90% of the material ends up in the stratosphere, but it ends up in the stratosphere because you kind of uh, almost sort of fiddled a bit in your model to have this plume height that almost got into the stratosphere, but not quite. Now, does, does your um, research tell us anything about how we could use the Gao Pongfei Yu technique to manipulate the climate? Does it, does it give us an indication of 
whether that would be more or less helpful. I mean, I guess with the increasing troposphere, uh, tropopause height, we'd have to go a bit higher to have the same injection effect, right? So, but, but, but what else might we learn from your research, particularly direct learning from your research, as opposed to just the background of learning about the different types of um, climate that might exist in a, in a warmer world? Is there anything that we, we can learn about that lofting technique directly from your research or, or is, there, is there no relevant learnings? I think there is, there is relevant learning, but also in a way our research has, you know, is quite standard. We inject sulfur dioxide that forms aerosol and that's the same lofting as in all other models. Whereas this paper by Gawetal, uh, you know, it's decided to mix the aerosol with black carbon. With that, black carbon, but, but, that, but don't, that helps um, boost that. But don't volcanoes emit quite a lot of sun and ash anyway? I mean, yeah, exactly. Was... So what what you are pointing out is another new learning from our paper, is a limitation from our paper, which is that we do not co-inject ash with the sulfur dioxide. Oh right, so you've just got this kind of magical sort of volcano with a catalytic converter on it that that doesn't produce any of the kind of pollution at all you're, you're you've got a, a sort of synthetic super clean volcano it's the vape pen of volcanoes right yes exactly and the reason we have that is that because there are until recently there was no climate model uh, that was capable of treating the ash effect on yeah. the sulfate aerosol cycle i think now there is one climate model that can do that it's a paper by and i'm gonna murder another name here i think it's zu et al uh, and I think it's the CSM Karma model. Uh, well, I murdered your name, so I that, don't think it's going to be. It's perfectly reasonable you pass on the uh, favour to others. Uh, yeah, so hopefully, yeah. Uh, but that that's another potential direction uh, for future research. Is to... So can you speculate then as to if we put ash back into your model, um, mm -hmm. how might how might the results change and what learnings could that have for a practical and applicable geoengineering scheme. Yes. So for example, based on this uh, paper by Gao and Carter, what you may expect is that the lifting related to absorption may be enhanced because of the presence of ash. And, so the ash is quite and, dark and, the, and, the, and, the, and it's quite persistent, right? So the, the particles of ash yeah, are quite... It, it lasts for a few months. And so our, yeah, okay. uh, a moderate eruption may end up having a climate impact at least as big in a future climate as present day. So what so big what you're speculation. Saying is, yeah, but let me it's, let me let me just run through the effect because it's really important to understand the effect. So what you're saying is that the the although the direct effect is only a few months, what's changing in this model is that the indirect effect is really significant because the ash keeps the whole plume cloud because it's in the sunlight, <laughs> the ash gets warm and it lifts up the the sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere where it then can form aerosols and so even if the ash then goes away afterwards it like kind of gives a piggyback to this to the sulfate which might stay around for much much longer right that's the effect that you're talking about is that yes. correct yes and that's highly speculative uh and of course if you had ash like you can complexify the three in many ways for example ash uh reacts with sulfur dioxide and as it settles down, it will also be a sink of sulfur dioxide. And so this paper well, with why, the why is that? PSM... Is that, because, is that, 
Is, is that because the, the sulfur just condenses on the particles? Is that is that how it happens? Because the sulfur what? Sorry. The, well, the sulfur the sulfur condenses and forms aerosols, right? And you'd imagine that the ash the ash particles are they have a physical size and they weigh stuff. They weigh something, right? So if a yes. sulfur dioxide particle crashes into a bit of ash, you'd expect it to be more like to fall out of the sky, right? Is is that the is that yes. what are you talking about? A chemical reaction? Are you talking about this kind of physical reaction? I think I think it is a chemical reaction. Uh, not my area of expertise. It's heterogeneous okay. reaction between the sulfur dioxide and the ash. So I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's directly between the sulfate aerosol and the ash. Okay, but why? I mean, they were together in the volcano. So they why wouldn't they have reacted there and not reacted when they come out into the air? I really understand. Okay, I I cannot answer this question, but when you go from the volcanic conduit to the top of the plume, uh, obviously you have change in pressure by order of magnitudes, change in temperature by thousands of degrees Celsius. Yeah, so, so things that wouldn't so the, have reacted in one situation, then yeah, the be, right? the chemistry becomes very different. So uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, but but excellent. what this paper by Zuetal suggests is, is that when you add ash, this uh, you essentially end up uh, removing 40% of the sulfur dioxide. Um, okay, so, so the ash, al although the ash might help with the lofting, yes. you're saying that the reactivity of the ash with may, the may sulfur reduce dioxide... the effective load. Yes. Yeah, may, 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 you've got a, yeah. a, a large and opposite effect, and that pr that's probably dominant, right? Yes. Okay, yes. I mean that's really interesting. I mean that's that yes. you know, that alone is something that's pretty useful because um, I hadn't considered. So, and what what in the ash? I mean, the ash is basically just bits of rock, right? It's like it's little bits of rock, isn't it? Yes. So, what Sil what in the ash is? Yeah, but so what? So is it because the silicate material is basic and it's reacting with the uh, acid aerosols? Is it an acid-base reaction that's happening there, or what? I okay, we are beyond my area of expertise here, so I've never done. It, it, ash. it sounds it sounds reasonable, right? I mean, you've got an acid gas, and then you've got a basic mineral, and and you'd expect that the two things might well react with each other, right? So it doesn't it doesn't sound stupid to assume that 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 would happen, right? But I don't know whether it does or not. So okay, well that's fascinating. I mean, we can have a chat about that later. So I think this is a, a an interesting podcast, not only for the sheer number of things that we got wrong and didn't and answer questions on <laughs> exactly yeah i mean yeah. The, the level of, of of ignorance displayed is probably greater than than um, a whole slew of the other ones added up together so we should award ourselves a big pat on the back for um a misleading and confusing um the greatest possible proportion of our um uh, readers and listeners um so that's pretty good um is there anything else that you want to sum up um before uh, we close or not? Well, I think hopefully we've confused your audience enough. So, uh, well, well, that's fine. Ma I'm maybe you should reject my paper. And... Well, I'm going. Yeah, I'm going to do that, of course. But I'm also I'm going to take the bold step due to the amount of confusion involved. I'm going to take the bold step of rejecting you as a person as well. So, um, thank you very much for coming on, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope everybody else enjoyed being confused and baffled. And I look forward to. Um, hosting you again when you have uh, learned more about your subject. Sounds great. Thanks for greeting me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.